In his book, Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, historian David Blight reminds us that how a society remembers its past is a good indication of how the people of that society see themselves. Blight notes that in the case of the Civil War, African-Americans were virtually ignored as the nation constructed its collective public memory of that period. At the 50th anniversary of the battle at Gettysburg in 1913, for example, there was no mention of the role that slavery had played in the conflict. Instead, the events held to commemorate the occasion focused on the extent to which the nation had healed the sectional divide that had precipitated the war. Unfortunately, as recent tensions over the legacy of the Confederacy and the statuary that was later erected to celebrate it shows, the healing that the nation believed it had achieved in 1913 was essentially an illusion. In 2017, Mitch Landrieu, the then mayor of New Orleans, was one of the first prominent national leaders to call this illusion into question and to ask for a forthright conversation about the meaning and impact that Confederate monuments have on people's sense of self and community. In a speech announcing the removal of three Confederate statues in New Orleans, Landrew asked the citizens of that city to not be afraid to face the truth. Quoting from the speech that former President George W. Bush gave at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Landrew said, a great nation does not hide its history, it faces its flaws and corrects them. As many have argued, one such flaw is the celebratory narrative that surrounds the history of the Confederacy. Join Marcus and me today for another conversation about history and memory. We'll be talking with Mayor Landrieu to hear firsthand why he felt compelled to step into this important but also contentious conversation. Where does he think the conversation will end? And why, if we fail to engage that conversation, does he think we will continue to experience racial conflict and division in the days ahead? Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. Again, I'm your your co-host with my brother here, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Harvey, I'm Darren Waters. We're glad to have all of you back here again. Marcus, how is life treating you right now? Things have been pretty busy, but um, again, I I enjoy, I always enjoy our conversation. So it's it's nice to be able to return uh, to, to this context to explore some other topics. Right. You know, I'm sure that our audience is noticing that there's kind of a different model to the show with the cold open. And then we come in for conversation. I've gotten really good feedback on how we're kind of uh, tweaking the show. And Marcus, again, I I will just raise here. I I appreciate hearing from the listeners, from you all in the audience, what you have to say about the conversations that we're having, how important they are. Marcus, they have also made some points about a recent show that we did on the issue of civic engagement, that live show. And I got to tell you, Seth and Miranda have, uh, I think that they're outshining us now in uh, their popularity. (laughs) Well, you know, it really was, again, I I really was just struck by how 
um, sophisticated um, they are in, in, the, in how they think about the issue of civic engagement and also in how they talk about it, um, you know, as, as essentially youngsters. I mean, they're, they're um, you know, coming out of high school. So that was a very um, inspiring experience, um, you know, and one that, you know, that made me think, you know, wow, you know, I hope that when my son Carter is, is, is that age, 18, 19, that he is, is that sophisticated. So, <laughs> yeah. So it, we're getting a lot of feedback and we want to just yeah. say, if we can just say hello again to Seth and Miranda, thank them for joining us and all the others who were on that panel talking about the issue of civic engagement and how it is important for us to kind of think about this and the, and the role that we as individuals and especially as citizens play in our democracy. Now, Marcus, when we started the Waters and Harvest Show, it was about bringing kind of marginalized subjects, marginalized communities, our underrepresented communities and voices to the table because we thought it's important for people to hear these stories. You have talked about how story is the gateway into relationship. And I think that that has really resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, I think so too, because in, in part because, you know, the who can't relate to a uh, story, to the experience mm -hmm. of, of hearing a story, to the experience of telling a story. Um, I, I think it's probably one of the most basic forms of human communication. So it, it's, it's no small surprise to me and probably isn't a surprise to others who, who are out there listening to us that um, that something as simple as a story can serve as a way of bridging the chasms of difference that mm -hmm. that that have that have plagued particularly American society uh, since its inception. So, you know, I, I, I think it really is high time for us to to rediscover right to rediscover the importance of of storytelling as a as a strategy for for bridging difference well i know everyone's going to be excited about the conversation that we're going to have with former mayor of new orleans mitch landrew today mm -hmm. because marcus one thing that i've already noted and i'm sure you did when we were in a pre-show kind of prep is that he is a wonderful storyteller mm -hmm. but before we get to mitch and, and we start talking about the work that he has done in his own home state in louisiana and in new Orleans specifically, we want to talk also talk about this commitment that we've had to bringing younger voices to the table, to be a part of this conversation. We did that with Seth and Miranda. We've done that with Jacob and Wyatt in shows that we did uh, a while back, which ironically was about civic engagement as well. But from time to time, you and I are going to invite another voice into the show every now and then. I'm sure that everyone is going to enjoy hearing from uh, Malia Graves. And Malia is a second year student at UNC Charlotte. She has agreed to join us. She has a wonderful perspective on some of the topics that we're discussing. She is a business major and also majoring in pre-med there at uh, at UNC Charlotte. Um, you know, I wish I could pull her over into our camp of the humanities and pull her over to history. But uh, my understanding is that she is shining very brightly in the fields that she's studying in. But Malia is here. And Malia, we want to just give you an opportunity to just jump, jump into the conversation and welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Yes, welcome. Thank you. It's really, really great to be here. I'm really honored that you guys would have me here. Yeah. And so you have a, a perspective, um, Malia, on younger voices being involved in these conversations around community, community building, about civic engagement, what it means to be a citizen. And mm -hmm. you want to take a moment and just share a couple of those perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's extremely important that we take into account and into consideration the voice and the voices and the views of the people who the torch is being passed to, you know, uh, I'm learning from the people who are older than me, but essentially I'm going to be the one in 15 years or five years or 
five months to be putting that action and, mm-hmm. you know, on the ground and really taking it to people and putting it into motion. And I definitely noticed that on my campus too. Um, I'm publicist for Black Student Union on my campus. So I definitely see that a lot in the other orgs that we collaborate with. We have a lot to say, you know, so much mm-hmm. to say much to to contribute to conversations and i do think it's important that we're allowing those voices to be heard as you two are doing today because it's such a unique perspective you know yeah well we certainly want to welcome you here don't we mark welcome and brother i have to say you 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 shouldn't assume that everybody wants to be a historian okay (laughs) they may want to you know come over into my camp you're always trying to recruit (laughs) well you know you know uh history is has given birth to all of the other fields anyway, Marcus. So, you know, okay. So you say. (laughs) Well, Malia, we want to thank you for being here. And I know Marcus and I are excited about what you'll bring to this conversation. Mm -hmm. So we we are going to bring uh, former mayor of of New Orleans, Mitch Landrew, into this conversation. Many of you know that name. Mitch is uh, just a wonderful person. I've had a chance to have a conversation with him before, even as we were doing pre-show prep today. It was just a beautiful conversation around the table of him sharing his experiences in Louisiana, uh, just what it is like there right now, and especially as we go through this COVID crisis, and now, you know, we're, people are experiencing winter in a very brutal way, but we're glad to have Mitch here, and Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking time to be here with us and to join us today. Dr. Waters, thank you so much, and Dr. Harvey, and I'm really pumped up to be here with Malia, <clears throat> because I love, I always keep asking the question, where's the future, you know, where's the future? Right. Right. And you have to ask, you have to ask young people, you know, because us old folk, not that I'm, you know, saying anything about you, Dr. Waters, but us people that are moving, you know, into the back to the back nine, as they say, mm-hmm. it's helpful to kind of reach down and to be edified and be uplifted. And I am um I'm really enthralled by the young people of today mm-hmm. who have found their sense of voice and their sense of purpose and you know, civic engagement is a fancy way of saying, you know, I, I want to have something to say about you know, the rules that I have to live by. Right, right. And I can remember, you know, people used to ask me, well, why'd you get in politics? There are a lot of reasons, but one of, one of them was I, I wanted to have something to say about, you know, what the rules were going to be. <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't really feel like, I didn't feel like anybody else telling me what it is that I had to do without me taking the responsibility of being involved in it and helping create something because it just doesn't happen by accident. It just is not sitting there for you can't take for granted that it's going to be or not be a certain way unless you help shape it. Mm -hmm. And everybody brings something really important to the table. So I'm really you know, I know people are really kind of bummed out right now because of the trauma that we just went through for the past four years. And we have reason to be upset about a lot of things. But as we learned after Katrina and, you know, the good book tells us this joy cometh in the morning. Uh, and you know, when it's the darkest, that's when angels among us just rise up and you've seen this huge outpouring of, of just courageous activism by young people who have decided that they have to shape their own future for many different reasons. So I'm really excited about it. Malia, I'm really happy that you decided to join us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Mitch, one of the places I would love to start, I mean, I think people know your bio, but just to, just to mention, you served as Lieutenant Governor of your state in Louisiana from 2004 to 2010. 
then mayor of New Orleans from 2010 to 2018, 16 years in the state legislature. I mean, one of the things I'm, you know, not only the courageous work that you did in Louisiana around conversations related to the Confederacy, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes, but, you know, that work and the courageous stance that you took, you know, earned you the uh, JFK, the John F. Kennedy profile in courage. And so we want to just take the opportunity to congratulate you on that as well. Mm -hmm. And for this great big body of work that you have produced and that you left for your state. Now, I have to ask, I'll start here and then Marcus will and then Malia jump in when they want to. But um, can we, can the Waters and Harvey show be the uh, platform for any major announcement about your political (laughs) career? (laughs) Not not at this time. Okay. Well, well, Mitch, I will but, tell you, there are many of us who are watching and waiting. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Let me, let me, first of all, thank you for that recognition. I did serve for 30 years in, in uh, government service. It was a great honor to serve in the state legislature, then to serve as lieutenant governor, to serve as mayor. Each one of those jobs gave me a different perspective of how to be engaged and how to serve your country. But You know, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people. I can't, I'm 60 years old now. My wife and I have five children. I can't really remember anything in my life that I did on my own. Mm. I just can't, I can't, I can't think of a thought that I had that somebody else didn't contribute to that uh, or people who went before me, whose shoulders I stood on. My dad served as a, as a, as a state legislator, as a mayor and secretary of Jimmy Carter's cabinet. My sister Mary was a United States Senator. My sister Madeline was a judge. Between the between the three of us and others, we have 110 years of elected service to the country. And it's been a blessing. I mean, it really has been an incredible opportunity because it forces you to get outside of yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to see other people mm-hmm. and to hear other people. And your life gets enriched by the connection that you have to all the incredible people that you can meet. Um, I'm a Southerner, you know, as many of us are. And, and I have a little chip on my shoulder because I'm a Southerner because when I go... <laughs> I went to school at Washington, D.C., which they don't think they're in the South, but they keep forgetting that they are, that that they, they think sometimes people down in the South don't know how to read and write too well, you know, and I keep thinking that we have a lot to offer the rest of the country. Right, right. And, and so I love I love the fact that I'm a Southerner, but I'm also burdened um, by our history. And I am um, from mm. time to time when I feel joy, I feel pain. Um, We live in this, I live in the great city of New Orleans, as you know, that at once celebrates so much of life, but we also celebrate death and, um, and what we learn from each other and get from each other and the proximity that people of different races, creeds and colors have had um, has been instructive, I think, for the rest of the country. And we have an obligation, I think, um, better yet stated as maybe a responsibility to try to get it right. Um, You know, after Katrina hit, just beat the I mean, it really hurt us badly. 1,800 people were killed. 500,000 homes were hurt. There's been significant devastation across the country, so people can feel our pain as well. But when you have to build back, you don't put it back like it was. And so this gets into y'all's expertise as, as people talk. You want to talk about stories, but you have to know what the stories were. And you have mm-hmm. to know that in some instances, intentionally, stories were forgotten or they weren't told. Or they want lifted up. And so we have a tendency to want to look at our past in, in a two-dimensional way instead of a multi-dimensional way. And I think Dr. King really kind of reminded us that, that we really are intertwined. We are indivisible. We are a mosaic. We're not just a bunch of colors splatted on the canvas. We are so there's so much intersection between all of us that we we cheat ourselves from 
um, the richness that we could have if we could tr- really figure out a way to get past some of the more difficult issues that we're confronting today, which have been so prevalent on January 6th. And then, of course, many, many, many years before. I know there's some folks that are thinking that January, January 6th was just came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of somewhere. And it started a long time ago. And I think that's a conversation that we have to think about. Um, I'll just end with this comment on on this particular piece that Isabel Wilkerson, who is, uh, I think, one of the most brilliant writers um, who wrote The Warmth of Other Sons and then has just recently produced Casts, has a beautiful way of reminding us how much we have lost, Mm. um, but yet how much we still have to gain if we could get it right. And I think the getting it right part um, Malia is going to fall on your shoulders, how you help us really figure out us oldsters, you know, how we could actually do more than we think and how that we shouldn't be so timid and what we shouldn't be so afraid and that the future looks better than the past, even though the past has a tremendous amount of pain, working through that pain, resurrection and redemption, standing up, getting up, not letting anybody turn you around, all of these things that are found in, in, in the wordings of the art and the music and the history you know, has already given us the pathway forward if we find the courage to just grab onto it and be the thing that that we know that we should be. But unfortunately, because of human frailty, we haven't been able to find. We're going to continue our conversation here on the Waters and Harvest Show after a short break. Please stay with us. You're listening to the Waters and Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We are speaking today with former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrew. Marks, let me turn it over to you. I mean, just where uh, Mitch just left off. Yeah, such such a powerful observation as you were just saying, brother. Mitch, you mentioned um, being burdened by history. You referenced the importance of story. Um, and, and I'm thinking about um, the controversy that has been really swirling in this country for the past, I would say, 10 or 15 years around the erection of monuments um, you know, recalling uh, the Confederacy, right? Um, I think about, for example, the monument to, to the Confederate soldier in North Carolina's capital, Raleigh, right? I mean, I think about other monuments. Um, and so I'm just curious to hear from you, uh, what what has been the history surrounding uh, the Confederate mon- monuments in New Orleans, right? A big part of your um, time as mayor was, um, or, or a significant part of your time as mayor was defined by uh, your decision to to do away with these monuments, right? So um, so just thoughts about the history of these monuments um, and uh, when they were erected, what it was like to sort of shepherd the people of New Orleans through this controversy. I, I hope not to make the answer too long, but it's, mm-hmm. it's worth a deep dive here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the history of the monuments is tied to the history of the country. We say and have gotten used to saying that slavery was uh, our country's original sin. Uh, and I continue to say, but and racism continues to be our Achilles heel. In other words, we, we always have been a great country. We're the only country that's ever been formed that was formed around an idea. It wasn't through, um, you know, hereditary. You didn't you didn't, you know, grab something because your daddy had it or your mama had it. It was supposed to be based on merit. You, you hear all historians, even, even those of us that are fighting all of the time, say that um, the central idea of the United States of America is that we all come to the table of democracy as equals. And we all know that we've failed at that. Nevertheless, it is the idea upon which the country is based. And all of us have been bought into the idea of how we form that more perfect union 
that Dr. King talked about, and of course, Frederick Douglass and, you know, all of the folks all the way through the line of succession through President Obama and up to today. And we recognize that we're falling short on that. And even our founding fathers clearly didn't make that mark yet. The United States of America has always thirsted towards that. Now, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi says that it wasn't really the idea of you go forward and you lurch back. Every day, good and evil has been walking side by side throughout American history. And then one, one leads to the point. But we have never really exercised ourselves from the terrible impact and effects of slavery. Now, white people have a really hard time hearing this mm-hmm. because the, the whole history was not told. And the monuments were a way to tell only one very small part of our history. Remember, you know, we were we, the, the city of New Orleans, by the way, was founded in 1718 before the country was founded, all right, before we became the United States of America and slavery started before that. So there were people living in this space of stealing people's lives and property and families and rape and forced labor camps for a long time. And then the United States comes into being, and then we try to extricate ourselves from it. And then sometime after that in 1861, um, it got so bad that we decided that brother and brother were gonna kill each other. over a singular issue. And this is where the monuments come into play. I think history has rendered its verdict. I don't think there's a question about this anymore, that the Civil War, the people that formed this thing called the Confederacy, which by the way, was not a formalized governmental entity. It was a caliphate. Mm -hmm. It was a self-ordained thing that by the way, did not represent the views of all of the white people in the South, but many of them. Um, And it wasn't a formal government, but they had a self-appointed president, Jefferson Davis, and a vice president who wrote something called the Cornerstone Speech. Mm -hmm. The Civil War was fought with the intent to rip apart, to destroy, fought against the United States of America, to rip it apart and to destroy it for the cause of preserving slavery, because it was that economic system that allowed the businesses and the economic models in the South to send. And as a consequence of that, Over time, four million human beings were enslaved, raped, beat, hung, and families were separated. And that that still reverberates to today. Now, obviously, everybody knows that the Confederacy lost the war. Thank God. The United States of America has stood. We have kind of tried to, over time, get better. We had it right, right after when Reconstruction came into play and the federal government came into the South and basically said, look, we really mean what we're going to say. That lasted for a couple of years until they had this compromise and the federal troops were pulled out. And then all of a sudden, when that happened, the people who lost the war, who were still the bankers, the lawyers, the doctors, the politicians, went into creating laws that turned into the black codes. And from that point until today, there have been overt and aggressive efforts to basically pull back, push down, push aside what African-Americans were entitled to, which is to be treated as equal citizens. And the monuments were a part of that larger arc, which was designed to send a message to people in the South that, you know what, you guys might have won the war, but we won everything else and we're still in control. And as far as we're concerned, we do think that white people are superior to African-Americans. And as a consequence, are going to get the benefit of the doubt, not get the benefit of the doubt, are going to get the benefit of you know investments in real estate, not the detraction from redlining. We are going to have access to the ballot box. You're not. In racial gerrymandering, we're going to make sure that districts work a certain way. And it was all about maintaining a certain sense of power. And those monuments 
were basically put up as symbols to remind everybody that that was the current state of affairs. And so it's not, I, I want to say to people, I don't want them to get lost in the stone, in the metal of the monument. Mm. Is it historic? Is it a nice piece? Who was the artist that did it? Should we contextualize it? Maybe, maybe not. But I'll tell you what we should not do. I don't think that we should put those monuments that were meant to celebrate the Confederacy and celebrate the attack on the United States. I don't think we ought to put those things in places of reverence. I think that we should always remember them. And then we should remember not only the history of 1861 to 1865, but we should remember the history of the whole country. We should remember not just white guys who fought as generals in four years of a war against the United States, but we should remember women and we should remember other people of color. And we should remember people that fought for the union. And we should remember our whole history. And finally, as uh, when I walk through this monument issue, it just opened up this idea that we walk by institutional bias and racism every day and we don't see it and we don't notice it because, Doctor, as you said, as we started, that when you begin storytelling, whose perspective you're telling in the story really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And you can tell an identical story from two different perspectives, Hamilton being one of them. It's the recent iteration, you know, of a Broadway show that recalibrates what our founding fathers went through from the eyes of people of color in an art form that was resonant today. And it reached an entire new audience. Same thing with the Tulsa massacres. You could go through books and books and books of history that people don't know about, don't understand that if you told them about would go, oh my gosh, I didn't understand that perspective. And now that I do, it's helped me as a person transform into what it means to be uniquely American and understand from my perspective that white people have lost so much as well. I just want to ask the country what, when they think about the number of people that were expelled from the South because it wasn't comfortable, and those great American citizens took their intellectual capital, their raw material, their raw talent. Where'd they take them? Mm. To New York, to Detroit, to Chicago, to Los Angeles. All the people in Los Angeles are eating good because the people from, from Louisiana are cooking. <laughs> and, and, and their generations, okay, to make, I'll poke a little bit of fun at it. But when you take the intellectual capital, the people like Oprah Winfrey, who's from Mississippi, you think about Jackie Robinson, you think about any person that is of substance, you know, in the African-American community, they are likely to have come from the South. And so my mm -hmm. question to the people in the South of, did we win or did we lose mm -hmm. by running everybody out? A, and, 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 and so feel bad about that for a minute. But then think about this. How much could we do if we invited everybody home and that we were inclusive and we had the benefit of Amanda Gorman and Wenton Marcellus, my buddy, who happens to be in New York right now playing that horn, He's not planted in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Jazz at Lincoln Center, that $800 million building with 3,000 jobs is in New York. It's not in Georgia. Right. Right. right? And so <laughs> this kind of idea about what we lost and what we could gain, those monuments represent the negative side of that argument. And that's why I think people should extricate those from public spaces of reverence, because it's not just stone and metal. It's the idea that's behind them. It's the systems that allowed them to stand. And it's our inability to move past the idea into a new way of being that that, that really kind of uh, prepares the future for Malia and, and her generation. Yes. Yeah. No. Wow. <laughs> I agree. Everything you just said was so I was nodding my head over here like, yes, yes. So much of that is are things that we talk about on the daily in, in my organization on campus. And 
Mayor, I have a question for you because it came up as you were talking, how you say something we say as young people, we say, you know, don't just talk about it, be about it. And it's something that I think you you emulate that kind of that phrase because you actually took action to support the things that you were saying, the things that you were preaching to people. I, I wonder, though, how have you dealt with the backlash from the community, from these self-proclaimed Confederate, you know, history uh, protectors who say, like, this is not something that we need to be doing? How have you dealt with that? You know, Malia, thank, that's a great question. Um, that's really not a political question. That's a, that's a humanitarian question. You know, you all, everybody knows how this feels. Um, if you're in the hallway of your school and you got a click and they want to bully somebody or tease somebody, and you're thinking to yourself, do I really want to stand up to these people? Because if I do, I'm not going to get invited to the party on Friday night. You know, and you that that moment, that little thing about whether you're going to stand up for somebody who, who is getting, you know, uh, oppressed or not is very similar to the way a mayor feels when they say. You know what? I, I mean, I could take that monument down or I could just walk by it and nobody would ever know. You know, so look, this is seriously, and, and I, I want to say this, that I, I have had so many mentors and I've stood on the shoulders of so many people and, and I'm honored to have gotten the John F. Kennedy Profile of Courage Award, but I can think of more times that I was a coward than I was courageous, okay? So I'm not trying to be righteous about this, but I do I do remember what happened. And it's, it's so Wenton had come into town and Wenton Marcellus, who's the greatest trumpet player in the world, that's how y'all know him. But I know him as a kid I grew up with who just happened to play the horn, you know. And so in that in that perspective, I was as the mayor of the city, we were rebuilding it after having gotten beaten to death by Katrina. And, and you're thinking about how you're going to rebuild the city. And the city is a lot like a painting. It's like an orchestral piece. I mean, everything's got to fit together. It's supposed to be in harmony. Colors are supposed to work. It's got to function for people, but it's got to edify their soul. And every mayor in their mind is kind of an architect of humanity and, and, and not only humanity, but the application of government services. So we're rebuilding the whole city. We're building our schools. We're building our bridges. I'm building a new airport. And I'm thinking about the space that people are, are moving around there. Cause new Orleans, people, we, you know, down here, we say, can you feel me? Cause we're very close to each other and we're hugging and we're kissing and, you know, even people that we don't like, you know, it's Lent. So we forgive each other easily. And <laughs> a lot of stuff. And, and we make up real quick, just like families do. And so in that regard, I was asking Wenton, who came into town, they played Saturday night at the Sanger. And I said, hey, man, meet me tomorrow morning for coffee. And we did. We met at Starbucks on Convention Center Boulevard. <laughs> and and uh, we just sitting there, as Wenton likes to say, like two old men just talking about old times. And I was like, Wenton, look, it was 2014. So think about this is before Trump and, and Clinton even talked about running for president. This was two years before Mother Emanuel. This is like way early. And uh, I'm saying to Wenton, you know, the 300th anniversary of New Orleans is coming up. How can I excite, you know, the people of New Orleans and the young people into building a city that should have been built right if we would have gotten it right the first time? In other words, let's not put it back like it was. Let's go back and think about who we were, who we want to be, how are we going to get there, how I'm going to build a 21st century knowledge-based economy, Malia, for you and your and, 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 and your generation and what's the future going to look like in 2040 and how do we get ready for that? That was the conversation and went and said, I'll help you prepare for your 300th anniversary, which was four years away at the time. So preparation and vision, you know, and is important. And went and said to me, he said, look, hey, man, I'll, I'll help you do that. But I want you to do something for me. 
like this was going to be an even trade. I thought he was going to ask for a ride home or something. He said, I want you to take down the Confederate monuments. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't want to tell you what I said because it wouldn't be appropriate. But I was like, what the, what, what, what are you talking about? Now, because I knew, I mean, like I'm a politician and my brain knew right away he asked me to get into a war. That's what he asked me to do. He was like, let's go fight the Civil War again. I was like, you lost your damn mind. And, and the truth is, my first response was to flee. My first response was, that's not my responsibility. Because on the scale of things, somebody could argue that they want the most important thing on the agenda. And that, you know, we had high rates of violence. We had streets that weren't working. We had a sewer and water system that was still troubling. And we were trying to get ourselves in financial health. I could have easily walked by that. And as a matter of fact, some of my sharpest criticism came from friends of mine who said, we think you're diverting your attention from the most important things in the city. Mm. My answer to that was, look, I'm really competent at what I do. And I've got a great team. And if I can't do more than one thing, I shouldn't be the mayor of the city. Number mm. one. Okay. So number, and by the way, the proof's in the pudding, and you can go back and look at everything we've rebuilt in the city during the eight years that I was mayor. So I felt good about our work, but I also knew that I was going to take a whooping and I knew that this was going to be hard and I knew that it wasn't going to go down easy. And I really did. My first reaction was, was to, to, to flee and to say, but went and said, then he said something else to me. And this really actually changed my life. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, take responsibility for this, but he, he owns it. Um, and he didn't mean it. He said, do you know, he asked me a question. Do you know who put those monuments up? And I did not. He said, do you know when they were put up? I said, I do not. He said, do you know why they were put up? I said, I do not. He said, well, would you do a favor for me? And he said, would you learn? And I said, how can you not take that from a dear friend of yours? And then he said, um, have you ever considered those monuments from my perspective? And I said, I did not. And then he said this, and this freaked me out. He said, do you know that Louis Armstrong left here because of those monuments? Now, when he mm -hmm. said that, what he reminded me of, and he didn't even know this, was that years before that, I had given a speech in my inauguration address as lieutenant governor about what the vision of the New South was, what it is that we could be, not that we were. Mm -hmm. And when he said that in my speech, I had talked about the diaspora. I had talked about the great migration and how many people had left us. And he basically kind of crossed time and crossed space and didn't know it. And he penetrated my consciousness just by asking me hum human questions. And then when, when I said that, he, he, I thought to myself, well, you're Louis Armstrong to me and you left. And why did you leave? And this notion that Louis Armstrong and Marion Wright Edelman and all these fantastic people had left and took all this stuff, I felt as, a, as me, personally, Mitch, who happens to be a white guy from the South, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed devil, as somebody reminded me that I was once, I felt a tremendous loss. And I started thinking not of it just as justice, you know, for the people who had done great injustices, but what about my family? And what about me? And what have I lost? Because my friend Wenton had left. And what did I personally lose? And so it personalized it for me. And when he did that, I started thinking to myself, I'll look into this. And then what I found out in a reasonably short period of time without telling anybody was that I couldn't run and I couldn't hide <laughs> because the monuments were on city property. A mayor put them up. Only a mayor could take them down. And I concluded that it was my responsibility. Now, the next question was, nobody knows I had this conversation with Wenton. <laughs> 
nobody would blame me from walking away from this. Can you walk away? And so I thought about it and I prayed about it and I tried to walk away. But I, I had this weird, very strange thing happen to me is I had a dream one night uh, or, or I was just just kind of in contemplation. And I imagined myself talking to my grandkids who had yet to be born. And my little grandbaby saying to me, you know, Paul, Paul, when all that stuff happened and when you were the mayor, what did you do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't I couldn't explain my way out of it. I couldn't I couldn't explain how I could not do something. And so I decided and this is the point, the long point. I called the question on the subject matter. Everybody else had we had all walked by him, not not the activists that had been working forever. A lot of people have been working to take them down. But elected and other elected officials had tried. But during the time that I had been in office, nobody really called the question. And I decided at that moment that I, I was going to call the question. The thing that made me do it, though, the thing that pushed me into it was something that I didn't have any control over. And that was when Dylan Roof walked into Mother Emanuel and killed our fellow Americans with 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 this sense of white supremacy. And it mm -hmm. was that when that happened. I said, we cannot do this anymore, mm. not in my city and not anywhere in the country. And we are going to we are going to lean forward and stand on the shoulders of the community that had been asking us. And we're going to ask people to face this question and we're going to make them answer it. And if we get it right, we should take them down because it doesn't reflect who we are as a people. It didn't reflect our history. It was a historical lie. It was the wrong thing to revere. And it was in, it was incomprehensible to me. And Malia, I'm glad you're on the phone because in the speech that I gave about it, it actually references a true story that a mother told me about trying to explain it to her daughter. And so there's a part in the speech that I give saying, imagine, a, so this is Wenton saying, look at it from my perspective. I turned that perspective into the perspective of a 12 year old African-American female looking up at Robert E. Lee. And I asked the question when she looks at him, do you think she thinks her future is bright? Mm -hmm. Do you think that she thinks Robert Lee, Robert Lee is there to lift her up or to push her down? Mm -hmm. So if we're asking ourselves, where is the future? And we're asking ourselves, what are we doing to encourage the young people to rise into their responsibility and their beauty and, the, and, and everything that they have? Do you think that's a plus or a minus? And if that's true, that he's pushing her down, what what's the city of New Orleans going to look like mm -hmm. in, in 2030 or 2040? No major company in America is going to want to come hang out in a southern town that reveres the Confederacy. And this is absolutely true. So if you don't care about this as a matter of justice, you better start caring about it as a matter of economic mm -hmm. possibility, mm -hmm. because no company in America who needs a diverse workforce is going to want to be hanging out in any town that has the tint or hint that white supremacy has anything other than is anything other than a memory never to be repeated. We're going to take a short break here on the Waters and Harvey Show, but we'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for joining us.
We want to remind those of you who may be just joining us that you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We are speaking again today with uh, former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrew, and it's been a very powerful conversation that we've had with him. And Mitch, time goes by so fast. Marcus and I always say that, and I could sit here, and I don't know about you, brother, I could sit here and listen to Mitch all day, just tell these stories. And Malia, the question that you asked is very important, but you know, And I want to make this observation, Mitch, but I want to ask you to respond to a different question, which I think is important for our listeners to hear. I know that we need to understand, and this relates to the question that uh, Malia raised, that this, you know, you were going through this challenge, but your family went through this challenge as well. And uh, you write about that in your book, uh, Standing in the Shadows of Statues. And I hope that the members of the audience, you all in the audience, will go pick up Mitch's book and read it because these stories that he tells about this process that you went through and even how his own son had to deal with this among his own friends, I think it's very instructive. But Mitch, here's what I'd like for you to respond to, because this is the question you and I talked about this before. Um, those people who say, okay, we're on a slippery slope here. How far is this going to go? Um, just recently in a newspaper, uh, I, I saw, this was February 17th, February uh 14th this year, that out in uh, San Francisco, the Board of Education declares that schools named after such people as Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Franklin Roosevelt, and even Dianne Feinstein should be renamed. And there's a movement to do that. So there are a number of people who say, okay, we can take this too far. How do you respond to that particular question? Well, I think it's true that anything you start, you can take too far. But you don't have to answer the question, where is this going to lead to, to answer the question, when's it going to start? I mean, I, I mean, it's just you have to ask yourself what I realized was all the people. There are some legitimate questions to be asked in context. But if the purpose of the questions is to stop you from beginning, then they're not really authentic questions. And so there are a whole host of questions that people said, why do you care about the statutes rather than the kids in the street being murdered? Well, um, first of all, I'm not. I spent almost every waking moment of my administration talking about young African-American kids of color getting shot in the city of New Orleans and working through gun violence and its importance. Why are you doing the monuments rather than the streets? I'm not doing that. I spent billions of dollars redoing the streets. Why are you spending so much time on monuments when you should be rebuilding housing and homelessness? Well, we did. We reduced homelessness by 88 percent. And by the way, I didn't spend that much time on the monuments. You all spent a lot of time on it because Mm -hmm. you could you got consumed by this, which is the whole point of why they shouldn't be there. And my question to you is, why are you fighting so hard to keep something that is so obviously painful in the most important spot in the city? And don't you understand that unless and until you get through the issue of race, that we actually cannot grow into the city or the country or the state that we always dream we should be. And so when they said to me, well, you can't start because we don't know where you're going to finish. What are you going to do next? I said, you know what? I don't I don't know where it's going to end, but I know where it's going to begin. It's mm-hmm. going to begin with me standing on the shoulders of others who went before me. And we're going to talk about the Confederate monuments, just four of them. Now, remember, I'm a politician and there were people who were pressing me to change every street name, to take down every monument, to change the names of every school. And I made the political calculation that taken down at the time, think about it, nobody else had taken down a Confederate monument. Mostly they were thinking about flags. 
I couldn't figure out, though, what the distinction between a flag and a monument was, other than one was cloth and one was steel. They were represented mm-hmm. the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if the flag's coming down in South Carolina, which, by the way, was too late. We actually did mm-hmm. that in 1967 in New Orleans, but I'm glad they did it. Um, how can you distinguish really intellectually between a Confederate flag and a Confederate monument? I think you can have an argument about whether or not Thomas Jefferson and Jefferson Davis, you know, people want to go grab George Washington and Jeff Davis and make it, I mean, and uh, Thomas Jefferson and talk about anybody that owned the slave. I think those are worthy conversations to have. The I don't know what the answer is. I can tell you that we've never had the conversation, though. And guess what? We never had a think about this. To all my so-called historians whose job was to protect our history and they spent their years just protecting four years of our history and nothing else. The people who they want to add to now that you're taking away their precious cargo and ask them, well, where were y'all in the conversation of who else? Where was Harriet Tubman that nobody talked about? Ida B. Wells. Where was where were all the all the African-American you know, folks that fought on the side of the union? When people start talking about contextualized history, you can say, where were you? But they you know, there weren't any commissions that were put together to examine how to curate our public spaces with authenticity. Mm-hmm. They just put them up. You know why they put them up? Because the daughters of the Confederacy were connected to the owners of the bank, to the mm-hmm. governor, to the president. Some of them were ex-Confederate generals, and they just put them up. So I kind of think it's not a bad idea in every community to have some kind of civic organization that whose job it is to say, How do we want to remember our whole past so that Mm -hmm. everybody sees who we are and what we are? And let's tell the whole story. Now, I'm going to end with this because I don't want to get stuck on the monuments. If you don't change the attitude that infuses the criminal justice system, the financial system, the housing system, the government system, the attitude that allows those monuments to stand up and you just take the monuments down and they say, that's enough. We gave you all what you all wanted then we will have not done anything. (laughs) It's the idea that allowed those monuments to stand, which is a notion of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. This idea that somehow some of us are better than others or some of us lord over others. I like the idea of equality better and equity and the fact that we all come to the table of democracy as equals and that diversity and indivisibility are one and the same. And I feel like that we have lost so much as a country. And so I'm willing to go through the pain I think the look back is really important, not for the purpose of bludgeoning people, but for the but for the sake of creating acknowledgement, accountability, atonement, because that's the only thing that allows you to explode into the future. And I happen to think the future is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more we can do together. And all you need to do to understand this is Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is, is is to think about to think about Sam Cooke and Bob Dylan. Right. All right. you got to do is think about this great convergence of music and storytelling that came when when Elvis Presley, you know, started singing, you know, the, the blues and gospel. And, and think about what, what that what that music makes you feel. Well, life can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Government is just a reflection of that. And so, man, we have a, we have an incredible future waiting. And I keep telling white people. Look, don't be afraid. Black people are not going to treat us nearly as bad as we treated them unless we keep acting out. All right. So let's let's kind of just get into this thing and accept what, what 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 our position is and make sure everybody else is invited into it. We've got so much to learn from each other 
that the future is going to be much brighter than any past that we've ever had. I, I want to hear, Malia, from you. You know, what, what are you thinking about these uh, the, the observations that Mitch is making here? And Marcus, I, I'll just say here, too, by way of letting you just jump back in, Malia, mm-hmm. that, you know, Marcus, this, this really revolves around the questions that we have been asking. Mitch is really asking those questions. Who are we and who do we want to be? But Malia, jump in here. Yeah. If you look at the broader picture, if you look at the overarching theme of unity, right, and like wanting to be one with each other and this whole thing that we we claim we are as Americans, you can't hold true and hold fast to something that's so blatantly says we're not united. This is not a, a union and this is not something that we, we want to see in the future. If we continue to hold on to these values that some people are saying are just a remembrance of history, we're essentially cutting out half of the people that are trying to be part of that union, you know? So a lot of what you said definitely resonated with me in the facts that if we don't try and at least to start the conversations and not saying that it has to all happen overnight, because as we see, you know, history doesn't change overnight. That's never going to be the case. But just having these conversations, as you said, like forming committees and communities and just talking about, well, what is the impact that it's having on the children? When you told the story in your speech about the young African-American girl, I was thinking, about myself. My mother and father, you know, they pounded into my head. You're worthy. You're smart. You know, the things that you're seeing and hearing do not reflect who you are as a person. And I'm so grateful I had that experience. But so many young African-American men, women, they, everyone haven't had that experience. And so being that I've been blessed enough to have people tell me that I'm worthy, I can't help but look to my left and right, see people who haven't had their parents or their teachers or their friends or Whoever tell them that, you know, you can surpass these expectations that have been set so low for you. You know, you you are not what they're saying that you are. And that story really just made me take a step back and say, this is why these conversations are important, you know, because we're never going to be able to form, a, as they like to say, a more perfect union if we continue to isolate those who are trying to say, hey, we're not trying to tear down what you've built. We're trying to make it better. We're trying to make it more inclusive. And I see that every day with the LGBTQ movements and just, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, things that we're doing that are statements and hashtags that are really speaking to a larger, more important context. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And and I think, I think, Mitch, a question, a question that I would, I would, um, add as a kind of addendum to, to, to Malia's very important question uh, would, would essentially be this. Um, I, it seems to me that, you know, the, 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 the taking down or the relocation of monuments is, is maybe like step one, <laughs> right? Step one in a much larger, much more complex process of, of really sort of becoming a more, um, a more unified uh, country, if I can even use that that that, that term. And I'm thinking about a, a question that that Darren and I have been sort of throwing back and uh, back and forth. And that is not only the questions of um, who are we, uh, who do we wish to be, and is there a we, but do we even desire at the end of the day? Is there even a desire to 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 for for there to be a we? Is there a desire to to reimagine or reconstruct? a new we, right, um, according to a vision much like the one that you um, described earlier, Mitch. So, so I guess my question would be, um, and, I, and I've, I pose this question even uh, to my students at various points, how do you really incentivize people 
um, to sort of buy, you know, so, you know, we, we, we live in a society very much um, informed by the capitalist ethos, uh, which is something that we have not really addressed yet um, in this show. Um, although you did mention, um, the, you know, the, the, the economic impact of of, of African-Americans like Oprah Winfrey and Whitney Marcellus leaving the South. Um, but, but how do you incentivize people? I mean, particularly those in power to really buy into this vision and to be committed to it in a way that is not limited to uh, the taking down of monuments or, you know, some, some other right. sort of gesture right. toward a new society. Yeah, well, and, Mitch, all, I- and Mitch, if I could say this before you jump in on Marcus's question, because in buried in Marcus's question is a conversation that we had with another guest, Dr. William Turner, uh, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is, um, you know, sociologist, very accomplished, you know, really put the study of black life in Southern Appalachia on the map. He was a pioneering scholar in, in that field. And Marcus asked him a question after the uh, George Floyd um, incident, and he asked him a question, and I and I just like to throw it out here too for your response to all of this, Mitch. That Marcus said, you know, why did it take this event to kind of galvanize us to pay attention? And Dr. Turner said, well, you know, sometimes he told the story of the farmer and the mule, and he couldn't get the mule to do any plowing, so he picked up a two by four, went around and smacked the mule over the head to get the mule moving. And so both Mark, he said, sometimes we have to be smacked in the head with a two by four, but as the father of two African-American boys. I don't want them to be the two by four that is used to be to smack the country in the head. So I'm wondering, you know, especially with the demographic shift, but this is buried in Marcus's question. You know, Brother Brown, I hope I didn't go too offline there, but I heard that. No, I heard, in that I heard him sneaking. I heard him sneaking that in there behind <laughs> all the 25 cent words he was using. <laughs> um, a couple things. First of all, um, Dr. Harvey, you are completely correct in saying that the monuments are a very, very, very small piece. They are stone and metal that are symbolic of what's in the soul um, and what's in our DNA that has to be extricated, um, that we have to think about. It is They are symbolic also of us walking by institutional bias, not looking at it from other people's perspective and not wanting to have the courage to fix the institutional biases that exist sometimes in plain view that we walk by every day. So if you, if you kind of extrapolate a little bit, you back up, pull out 10,000 feet, the same historically could be said about when police departments who are not properly trained um, mm-hmm. in use of force or peer intervention um, could engage in activities that result in the death of African-American men Um, in unjustified ways. I I put it in the blandest of terms on purpose. And then you say, well, I'm not going to worry about that because they're just killing a black guy. So what's the value there? I I can't see myself. I, white man, can't see myself in that. I, white man, think black men are dangerous. They have what's coming to them. That mindset, I can't see myself in it. It's the exact opposite view of Malia saying, well, how do I know I can be president of the United States when I look at the when I look at the page of all the people that have been there, I don't see anybody that looks like me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Malia, you still don't. You may see Barack, but you don't see a woman. And so for all the young men, ask yourself whether that makes any sense to you. And the answer is yes. All oh, you guys know this. When we play football on the street, 
and somebody's a quarterback and somebody's a wide receiver and you, you at least in the street when I ran on, when you got garbage cans on both sides and you're running across a cross street, not trying not to get hit by the stop sign because you're in the middle of the street <laughs> and somebody's on, go deep, go deep. And you say, well, who are you? Oh, I'm Joe Montana. Really? Well, can you think of another quarterback that you might want to be? You know, or when can a black man be a quarterback? Can I see myself in that space? Right. Or you say, well, can I see myself as a coach or better yet? If you want to be a, a young girl, you want to be a tennis player. Can you see yourself at Wimbledon? Well, you can now if you see Serena, but could you see her before? And so a lot of this stuff is like, well, well can I if, if I dream, can my dream be so big or am I limited? So like your mama and daddy patting you on the head saying, son, don't worry about that. Only white guys are going to be quarterback in the National Football League. Right. So don't worry about that. You can't ever be president of the United States. You know, the best you can be, you know, is maybe maybe the coach of a, of a junior league, you know, football team someplace. And for women, for the LGBTQ community, you know, before Pete Buttigieg just became the secretary of transportation. Can a gay person see themselves as a secretary of a cabinet? Well, maybe, maybe not. Are you going to be the first one to get whooped, you know, and just excoriated? And so it's all about possibility and it's all about you know, limiting ourselves based on race, creed, color, sexual orientation. And here's the question. Are we who we say we are? So we, we, we. So when I was talking, mm-hmm. to, I'm dropping names here, but I was talking to President Clinton about this. And he said to me, he said, Mitchell, he said, when you go back and read the founding documents, we the people, we do hereby ordain and establish. He's had everything that we're talking about fits into one question. Who is the we? And I want to remind you that the Watterson Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at whshow at bpr.org. And Malia, thank you for joining us today. And we're going to look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank Thank you, everybody. Thank Thank you. See you later.